Turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed, healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, spurn your name, your name is evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray. Father, now we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us through this passage of Scripture, that we may truly understand what the Lord Jesus meant when he said these words that seem so counterintuitive to uh, how we think about blessedness and happiness. We pray now to convince us and convict us of the word of God that we may leave this place transformed, touched, and changed by it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for every one of us in this room, uh, whether you've been a Christian a short period of time or you've been a Christian your whole life, um, living in the world creates certain expectations of what achievement and happiness look like. So if I were to sit down with each one of you and say, what does happiness look like for you? You would say, hmm. And then you would start to rattle off things that maybe you've had in your mind since you were a child, accomplishments, achievements, current temporary goals, things that make you happy. Um, And no matter how much our value system uh, we say our value system is directed by an otherworldly ethic, right? You know, the fact that we belong to God, and we would like to think that our values and the way we see the world is informed by that reality. The truth is, um, our emotions and our thoughts are very much informed by fleshly concepts of what blessedness or happiness looks like. Uh, by this time, you're realizing that Jesus was a paradigm shifter. He takes our concepts of success and happiness and blessedness, defined as they are by commercial metrics or power or force or money or influence, and he flips them on their head by saying what is possibly the most radical series of statements in the New Testament here. For the first time since choosing his apostles, Jesus comes down and he presents himself before the crowd. He comes down on the plane 
and now it's him and his 12 apostles, and he's introducing himself to the crowd. And he continues this ministry of healing, right? All these past few months, we've been talking about how Jesus is healing every one of their diseases and casting out devils and doing all these different things. And now Jesus has an inner circle of men who are going to take up with him uh, this mission he has to the world. And he gives this speech, which is what we call now the Beatitudes. And here's what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are these series of blessed R's. So in Luke, there are four, and in Matthew, there are eight. And some scholars have tried to reconcile that and and basically say that Luke and Matthew are telling the exact same speech, just in slightly different ways. But what what I think is really going on, and I think there is a a lot to support this, is Jesus was an itinerant preacher. And what that means is he was a traveling preacher, and he would go around and he would preach from town to town and city to city. And sometimes he would preach the same sermon or give the same message, right, because he was telling the same truth about the kingdom of God. But every time, just like you and I, he told it a little different. And so the Beatitudes in Matthew are a little bit different than the Beatitudes in Luke. And it's not that they contradict each other. It's that we think that Jesus um, was in different places. So what he says in Matthew was the Sermon on the Mount. What he says in Luke is the Sermon on the Plain. It says here Jesus came and appeared on a level place. So... These are the Beatitudes as Luke records them. And they're a declaration, uh, a collection of declarations by Christ about how the cosmic kingdom uh, will reverse the fortunes of those who the world considers losers. So here's what the kingdom does. It's a paradigm shifter. It essentially uh, changes the fortune of those whom are despised in the world's eyes. The marginalized, the disenfranchised, the losers according to this world are the winners in many senses in God's eyes, right? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He is completely changing the way we think about what it means to relate to God. Now last week I introduced the calling of the disciples by quoting Paul in Coloss- excuse me, Corinthians Uh, 126, remember when Paul says that God has chose the weak things of this world to defeat the strong. God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, right? God is pleased to do those things because he gets the glory. God gets the glory when he shines and glorifies himself in weak vessels, powerless vessels, Right among, among our calling, Paul says, there are not many wise or noble or powerful, but God shows the foolish things to shame the wise and what is weak to shame the strong. So the Beatitude statements um, are playing off of this idea, this further iteration of what it means for God to demonstrate his power in the world. He does it through unqualified people. He does it through weak vessels. And in the Beatitudes in Luke here, there are four promises and four warnings. We just read through them, right? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed is, you know, blessed are, blessed are. Woe unto, you know, woe to these, so the blesseds and the woes. And when we think of what it means, what this word means, blessed, it really is, it's not so much happy 
uh, a way to say these people are happy. It is essentially in God's, in God's mind, these people are enviable. So when, when he says blessed are, he's saying you are to be envied because of X or because of Y. So, um, and just a little bit about the structure before we launch into the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude and the fourth Beatitude are present tense. The second and third are future tense, and the same goes for the woes. The first and the fourth are present tense, and the second and the third are future tense. So, first Jesus says in verse 20, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And in verse 24 is the parallel woe. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So we might ask the question, uh, who is the poor in Jesus' statement? Who does Jesus have in mind when he says, blessed are the poor? Is this simply a statement about economics, a sort of ancient Marxism that canonizes the poor simply by virtue of poverty? Or is Jesus using poverty as a powerful metaphor for something bigger? Now, in Matthew's version, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we don't have to say this is what Luke really meant. What we can do is do justice to both statements and say that Jesus is pronouncing a a blessing on the poor economically and the poor spiritually. So Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor and the poor in spirit. And what Luke is getting at is that the marginalized in the larger world, whether on the basis of economic measures or other means, are the people that Jesus is talking to. And one of the reasons why is because if you see yourself as poor, you recognize that you're in need. Now this is really where the pivot point of the gospel moves. Because the world is essentially, when we've talked about the humble and the proud a whole lot, the world is really falling into these two categories of people, people who recognize their need, they recognize they need God, they recognize that there is a sense in which they are poor, either economically or emotionally or spiritually, and then there's a group of people who basically are satisfied emotionally or materially, and don't see their need for God. Right? One of the biggest challenges with the rich is that they are materially satisfied. And when you are materially satisfied, it's hard to feel that you need anything. This is, this is, this is a challenge, and this is one of the reasons why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to, go, to come into the kingdom than it is for a camel to go into the eye of a needle. Now, some people have posited that that statement represents a doorway into the city of Jerusalem that was called the eye of the needle, and you had to unpack your camel and shove him through, and that's just, that's just made of whole cloth. It's not true at all. Jesus is really saying, you know, as hard as it is to put a camel through the eye of a needle, that's as hard, that, that's the difficulty uh, in, in the wealthy and the rich coming into the kingdom. Now, Jesus is not just castigating having money. 
as if that's a bad thing. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a condition of the heart. Now, you remember that in Luke 4.18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor. And he's talking of those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Martin Luther put it really well, and he said, We are all beggars. Or we're beggars all, every one of us, whether we have or have not. We're all beggars in the sense that we need God's gracious benevolence to save us from our sins. So the promise to the spiritually destitute is that theirs is right now the kingdom of God. To you, those that recognize your need, the kingdom belongs to you. The kingdom is a present reality for those of you who are poor, poor of spirit, poor of heart. You recognize you need God. You know that for all that you may have, you don't have what it takes to measure up in God's sight. You recognize you need him. And Jesus says, yours to you belongs right now the kingdom of God because of that condition of your heart. It is a present reality. You know, so often we, uh, we can communicate the gospel and the promises of the kingdom in very much a pie-in-the-sky type of, uh, you know, very much pie-in-the-sky language, right? If you just hang on to this during this miserable time uh, of your existence, you know, one day when you get to heaven, everything is going to be good and glorious, and that's true, but the kingdom is much more than a future promise of glory in heaven. It is a declaration about your relationship and, and position with God right now at this moment, and your access to the blessings of heaven and relationship with God right now it is a present reality. Joel Green comments and he says, Jesus is saying to those who are poor and are accustomed to living on the margins of society that the kingdom of God is redefining the values and assumptions that determine daily existence. The social acceptance and honor withheld from you is now a reality because of the kingdom. Which is to say that the people, because of their connections, because of their influence, because of their wealth, who are connected on every level of society and are accepted and valued in the world's eyes, those are not the people who have access to God. It is the people that recognize their poverty. They now, right now, have access to God because the kingdom is a present reality. And then secondly, in verse 21, he says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. But woe, verse 25a, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. When Mary runs into, you may remember from Luke 1, Mary runs into her cousin Elizabeth, Right? They're both pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary is pregnant with Jesus. And Mary gives what we call the Magnificat, Mary's song in Luke 1. And in verse 53, Mary says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Hunger is the second mark of the blessed not just for a lack of food, but because of a lack of righteousness. And this is what David wrote in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water, 
so my soul thirsts for God. And Matthew's statement in 5 and 6 is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There is a certain type of hunger that only God can fill, and I would say that we all have that hunger, but sometimes when we're filled with all of the pleasures of this life and of this world, we, we, we fill up on those things. Have you ever had a meal and it didn't hit the spot? Or you ever, you know, you're hungry and uh, somebody gave you something or you went somewhere and you ate and, and it just didn't hit the spot, but you couldn't go and get another meal because you were, you were full, you were, you were filled up. But you regretted eating that meal because it wasn't what you wanted. That happens to me all the time, you know. It was like I, w- I just wasted a meal and it wasn't what I really wanted. And then sometimes you'll just have just an incredible burger or something and you'll say, oh man, that just hit the spot. When we fill up with the pleasures of this life, when we fill up with the things that this world has for us, whether it's media or entertainment, none of those things are sinful or anything like that in and of themselves. But sometimes we spend so much of our free time, you know, doing this or doing this or, you know, however you do it, right? I mean, you spend hours in front of that little thing or whatever it is, and we find ourselves filled up where there's no room for the things of God, but we're, still, we're not satisfied by those things, And so when we recognize that only God can truly satisfy us, we'll always recognize that we need to fill ourselves up and direct that hunger that we have to God because it's really a hunger of thirst and righteousness. Augustine was famous for saying, uh, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And um, I just forgot the saying. Um, It'll come to me. It wasn't in my notes. It just came to me right now. Um, we wander until God fills us up, until, until we fill up that space inside of us with the knowledge of God and the good things and the blessings of God. Um, but hunger is this other mark of blessedness, Jesus is saying. And the third beatitude pictures those who mourn in verse 21b. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And verse 25b is, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, I like a good laugh just like the next person. Right? Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is a good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And on the flip side, in Ecclesiastes 7 and 4, it says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Um, But the mourning in view here in Jesus' statement is really a picture of the emotional breakdown that uh, follows a recognition of spiritual bankruptcy and a lack of righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but there are moments in my life where my sins and how I fall short of God's glory and goodness hit me like a ton of bricks and it's devastating. I don't know if you've ever had those encounters or those moments where you recognize how sinful you are, how much you fall short of the glory of God and when it hits you, you're devastated, you're broken. There is a mourning. In fact, that should happen to us at some point in our lives. In fact, it happens at different points in our lives as followers of Christ And this is what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who are broken 
over their sins. For one day you will laugh. And then the flip side of that is, woe to you who laugh now. And this is the sorrow spoken of in James 4 and 9. That's according to the will of God which produces repentance without regret leading to salvation. But that weeping over sin will turn into laughter. Psalm 30 and 5, weeping endures for the night, but joy, who knows how, how this ends, joy comes in the morning. Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. In Isaiah 61, the Lord will give those who mourn in Zion a be- beauty instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then finally, there's a promise in Revelation 21, in the new heavens and the new earth, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a time where there's no more disappointment, there's nothing to cry about, there's nothing to be sad about ever again? That day is coming. And because that's a true reality about the future one day, that affects us now even as we encounter disappointment and heartache and tragedy. We don't mourn as others who have no hope. We mourn as people knowing that we do have a hope in God and one day all of our tears will be completely wiped away. You know, Billy Joel sang uh, a song, Only the Good Die Young. Somebody was thinking of that song probably, right? And he says, uh, you know, one of the lyrics he says, you know, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Every time, it's a good song, but every time I've heard that lyric my whole life, it just, it just, it just bothers me because it, it's, such a, it's such a wrong idea about what God really has and God's intentions are for his people. God has intended for us joy unspeakable, overflowing, and everlasting, right? You know, and then he says, you know, sinners have much more fun. Well, that may be true momentarily, right? Moses recognized the, you know, Moses forsook the pleasures of sin for a season, The Bible doesn't say that sin doesn't give us some type of temporary joy and pleasure, because it does, but uh, it's fading and it's futile and it's fleeting from us. But the joy that God promises, that eternal laughter no one can take. And then finally, and the last one we're going to discuss is, well, let me say this. The first three relate to how we view ourselves how we understand ourselves. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hung- those who hunger, and those who mourn, right? We're thinking about our own experience in the world. But this fourth one is about how others view us, how others see us. And he says in verse 22, blessed are you when uh, people hate you and when they exclude you And when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, 
For so their fathers did to the prophets. In other words, you're in a long line of people that serve the Lord who have been persecuted for their allegiance and naming the name of God. But woe, verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And here's this interesting um, tension we live in. We live in this kind of redemptive tension where we're proclaiming salvation to a world who hates us. And this is the reality that Jesus is speaking to. We're leaning into the world, proclaiming the message that through Jesus, God wants to save them, and often the, the, the response we get, in, we get in return is hatred. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's speaking to us about this. You know, Christian faith is often about swimming against the culture, and that involves denying yourself, right? Everybody wants to be liked. I mean, I do. I want to be liked. Um, but Jesus declares that the chief price we pay for discipleship is letting go of our desire to be liked by other people. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter, James, and John were arrested by the Jewish religious leaders, they were imprisoned and they were beaten and they were admonished, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And then when they were released, they, they, they leaped. They, they, they were excited. They were overcome with joy because they, they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And they thought that was an incredible blessing that someone would revile them, punish them for their testimony of Jesus Christ. And so this is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Which is to say, ridicule and rejection is a cross we must bear but the reward for following God's Son is great. Jesus says, leap for joy. When we name the name of Christ, we may lose our reputation. You know, some have even lost their lives. In fact, right now in our world, right, people are losing their lives. There are martyrs for the Christian faith right now in certain parts of the world, just like most of the disciples gave their lives for their testimony. But even if we lose our lives, we gain such an eternal weight of glory that the sufferings of this life cannot be compared with the eternal weight of glory. I want to share a story with you that serves as a vivid reminder of what I just said about the reward for serving Jesus. A wealthy man and his son loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection, from Picasso to Raphael. And they would often sit together and admire the great works of art. And when the Vietnam conflict broke out, the son went to war. He was very courageous and he died in battle while rescuing another soldier. And the father was notified and grieved deeply for his only son. About a month later, just before Christmas, there was a knock at the door. A young man stood at the door with a large package in his hand and he said, Sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier for whom your son gave his life. 
He saved many lives that day. He was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart and he died instantly. He often talked about you and your love for art. The young man held out his package and said, I know this isn't much, but um, I'm not really a great artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. The father opened the package, and it was a portrait of his son painted by the young man. He stared in awe at the way the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father was so drawn to the eyes that his own eyes welled up with tears. He thanked the young man and offered to pay him for the picture. The young man replied, oh no, sir, I could never repay what your son did for me. It's a gift. The father hung the portrait over his mantle, and every time visitors came to his home, he took them to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any of the other great works he had collected. The man died a few months later, and there was to be a great auction of all of his paintings and collected masterpieces. Many influential people gathered, excited over seeing the great paintings and having an opportunity to purchase one for their own collection. On the platform sat the painting of the sun. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. We will start the bidding with this picture of the sun. Who will bid for this picture? And there was silence. And then a voice in the back of the room shouted, we want to see the famous paintings. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? 100, 200. Another voice shouted angrily, we didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs and the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But still, the auctioneer continued. The sun, who will take the sun? Finally, a voice came from the back of the room. It was a longtime gardener of the man and his son. And he spoke up and said, I'll give $10 for the painting. Being a poor man, it was all he could afford. We have 10. Who will bid 20? The auctioneer declared. Give it to him for 10, the people said. Let, give it to him for 10. Let's see the masters, the masterpieces. 10 is the bid. Won't someone bid 20? The crowd was becoming angry. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their collections. The auctioneer pounded the gavel, going once, twice, sold for $10. And a man sitting in the second row shouted, now let's get on with the collection already. The auctioneer laid down his gavel and said, I'm sorry, the auction is over. What about the paintings? The crowd murmured. I'm sorry, when I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting 
would inherit the entire estate, including the paintings. The man who took the son gets everything. And that's God's message to the world today. That whoever takes the son gets everything. Whoever endures the reproach of this world for the son gets everything. Whoever proclaims the name of Jesus Christ in spite of a reputation being destroyed, in spite of a lack of popularity, no matter how much people talk about you, revile you, hate you for your testimony, those that take the sun get everything. And this is what captures the Beatitudes. That all that we lose in this life is nothing compared to what we gain through the kingdom and in eternity. Let's pray. Father, now we rejoice that by your grace we've recognized our poverty, the hunger we have for the things that can only fill us, which is your righteousness. Mourning over our sins, knowing, O oh God, that you take our sins and forgive us and give us in that place joy and laughter. Father, help us to recognize that your value system, what you consider blessed, which is truly blessed, is something that we have to learn to embrace because we're caught up in the current of this world's system of thinking and values. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would help us to recognize just how blessed we really are for belonging to you in Christ, your beloved Son, who you sent into this world to die for sinners like us. We were beggars and poor, and you made us rich through the kingdom of your beloved Son, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.